0: Good morning. Could I have asked for a better way to start my working week? (laughs) Welcome to the National Library and to the Canberra International Music Festival. I suspect some of you have been festivaling all weekend and you've heard lots of music, but this morning we're going to hear lots of words just to change things up a little bit. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Catherine Favell and I'm Director of Community Outreach here at the library and this is one of the perks of my job. As we begin this morning, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. It's a beautiful autumn morning. This land has been hearing music and words for thousands and thousands of years, and I thank our elders, past and present, for caring for this land that I'm now very privileged to work and to live on. We're delighted, of course, to partner with the Canberra International Music Festival for several events in the 2018 program. It's not our first collaboration with the festival for the year, Earlier this year, some of you may have been at the wonderful premiere of Moya Henderson's work, The John Brofskas Quartet, that the festival organised for us as part of our gorgeous exhibition, John Brofskas Journeys into the Wild. And it was a gorgeous way to conclude the exhibition. So we're delighted to welcome the festival back, and particularly to welcome back our guests this morning. John Mel, of course, needs no interrupt- introductions. But what you may not know is how strongly represented he is in the National Library's collections. There are books, there are theatre photos, there are programs, there are oral history interviews, including interviews by the late and great Hazel de Berg and in the SO Performing Arts collection. We also are privileged to be the custodians of John's papers and those of his wife Anna Volska and those of his sister, Maureen Seisner, who's been collecting, I suspect, John's career since the very first moment it began. (laughs) Joining John in conversation today is Genevieve Jacobs, and we love having Genevieve with us. She's part of our family, our local family, but today she's here with us again in her role as a board member of the Canberra International Music Festival. Please join me in welcoming John Bell and Genevieve Jacobs.
1: Thank you, Catherine, and good morning to you all. Uh, I must say I've had many an occasion sitting in exactly this position at the National Library, but never at half-past nine in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) So I congratulate you all on your fortitude in turning out on this glorious Canberra Autumn Day, and I see many familiar faces. It's lovely to be here with you. And um, I am indeed a board member of the Canberra National Music Festival. So perhaps this connection is just a little surprising on the face of it. In the context of a music festival, someone who has shaped Australian theatre as we know it today. And as Catherine said, John's had an extraordinarily distinguished career. Uh, He's been everything from a former associate artist with the Royal Shakespeare Company, co-founder of the Nimrod Theatre, an officer of the Order of Australia, the Order of the British Empire. He has an honorary doctorate of letters from the Universities of Sydney, New South Wales and Newcastle. And in 1997, the National Trust named him a living treasure, someone garlanded (laughs) with awards. (laughs) Um, John, good morning to you. Good morning, (laughs) good morning. In fact, you've actually also had, in the context of that long theatre career, quite a connection with music in a number of ways. You've had a, a dozen or so major productions for Opera Australia. How comfortable are you as an actor and director working with music?
2: The o- opera world is, is very weird. Um, <laughs> it's very, very exciting to put together an opera, <coughs> and uh, when you have that opening night and you have 80 people in the pit and another 80 on the stage and a rather larger budget than one is normally uh, used to, it can be very, very thrilling, and uh, especially if you're working on such a, you know, a great piece of work as many of the major operas are. The frustrating things about opera, uh, first of all, working with the actors as opposed to singers. When you work with uh, a bunch of actors on a play, they all arrive on the first day and uh, we start on a level playing field. Nobody quite knows where we're going to be heading or what we're going to achieve. No one has explored their characters. The director gives some sort of indication of where we might be heading with this thing, but over the next five weeks, organically, you shape it together. And everybody's there all the time, pitching in ideas, listening to uh, what's happening, maybe working on rewrites, if it's a new play. So it's a very, very organic uh, um, operation. And uh, the actors don't know their words. They're learning their words as they go, and um, so that, too, is a matter of complicite with the other actors. But then you come to the opera and when I arrive as director all the singers come in and they all know their parts off by heart. They've been studying these parts for months uh, with the repetiteur. Many of them have sung these roles before. So really um, all the director can do is say well this is the visual concept, this is the world we're creating. Um, I'll be a kind of traffic warden and you where i want you you where I want you to go and, and uh, you know, uh, <coughs> make made stage pictures and try, as far as I can, to develop relationships and um, make the acting look as real and natural as possible, give you as much uh, business to do with each other and with props and furniture and so on, to make it look as real as we can, and that's all I can do. Um, and with s- many of the opera singers, that's okay, they'll go along with that. Others will arrive and say, no, I don't do that. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um,
2: There's a story that uh, L.K. uh, um, uh, dear, uh, opera director, L.K. I forget her surname, I'm sorry. uh, um, But she told me she was directing uh, uh, Grace Brumby in a production. I forget which one it was. And so uh, Grace Brumby arrived for the first rehearsal and Elke said to her now, Miss Brumby, what I'd like you to do is you, you enter up there on the left, you walk across there and down those stairs, then you come around the fountain and then you go across there, and then you come over here and then you, then you start to sing. And uh, Grace Brumby said, Elke, honey, that sounds lovely. It is a beautiful idea, but honey, <laughs> what I do is I comes up there,
1: <laughs> I comes down
2: there and I stands there and I sing. <laughs> when I finish singing, I sit over there. <laughs> well, Miss Romney, okay, that's fine. Now, uh, th- this is your costume. No, no, honey, this is my costume. <laughs> Out of her bag, she had her own costume, she travelled with there, and she knew exactly what she was going to do. So, if you get somebody like that... <laughs> <laughs> The director becomes a bit extraneous. Think well, like um, so, but as I say, if you have the opportunity to work with singers from the beginning and you can make it as, as organic as possible, that's all fine. And I've done uh, uh, three major productions with Opera Australia and another one for op- Victorian Opera. But the problem then is after I've done the first production, um, I don't get invited back. <laughs> and I think it's to do with... Paying, <coughs> paying people. Uh, mm. So my assistant director will then mount the production the following mm. years. So if, say, Tosca or Carmen stay in repertoire for f- ten, fifteen years, as they often do, um, I have no further part in it. The mm. assistant director or somebody will come in and uh, look at the videotape or look at the notes, and he or she will will restage it. Mm. Um, and. Uh, Hopefully they will do it more or less according to what I had in mind, <laughs> but others might think they might improve on what I've done, or have other ideas, or the singers um, might have other ideas, so I tend not to go back and see it, because uh, I, might, I might not recognise it four or five years later. <laughs> As um, music? Just, just one, one, no. other th- one other <laughs> uh, frustration is, uh, even the first time you do the opera, and I did this with Carmen and Tosca in recent years, um, arrive on the first day I so, say, so where are the principals, singers? Oh, they'll be arriving three days before we open. <laughs> oh, I see. So uh, you'll be rehearsing the cover, the covers, hmm. the understudies. You'll rehearse with them and put them into it and then on the, in the last three days the singers will arrive from La Scala or the Met or wherever and then you'll, you'll put them in. So it's not quite the same thing.
1: Well, I mean, the word diva springs to mind, doesn't yeah.
2: it? <laughs> well, they're generally very pleasant, but uh, I mean, you haven't had the opportunity to, to really talk about relationships in no. detail with them. They, they come in and they'll more or less do what you have asked them to do, but, you know. Mm. And uh, there's always the battle between the, the conductor and the soprano and or tenor. That's always, you tend to stand back and let them slug it out because it's, <laughs> it, it can be a real bean feast when they uh, disagree.
1: Has music always been a part of your own creative life? Is there a continuing thread of music in in what
2: Um, you do? Well, in my private life there certainly Mm. is. Um, I never have um, ABC Classic FM turned off. It's always (laughs) running 24 hours a day. Um, And most of the plays I've done do involve music, especially with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. He he uses music all the time, Uh, not just for dances and masks and processions and so on. but Music as um, a healing, a healing power. There's a sort of a, a mystical power in music for Shakespeare. When people like King Lear or Pericles are on their deathbeds, they can be brought back to life through music. Mm. Uh, Plays like *Midsummer Night's Dream* and *The Tempest* are replete with music as a kind of magical, mystical force that governs the universe, mm. creates, you know, nature as we know it. Mm-hmm. So, music's very, very important. I think. Uh, and the fact that Shakespeare used it so much and in so many different ways indicates how how significant it can be and should be in, in theatre. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and at every level in the theatre, I think, if we consider if there were no music, certainly on television, if there's no music, we're being subtly guided often along the way, aren't we? We're being given cues.
2: Oh, yes. That's why i, I much prefer to see a movie without any, any music, yes. <laughs> frankly, <laughs> because. Uh, If you see a a film and there's no musical soundtrack Mm. and it's just the actors and the dialogue, then you're getting the real deal. When they start putting in soupy music underneath to tell you what to feel and what Mm. to think and here comes the villain and this is the emotional (laughs) bit and this is the sad (laughs) bit, you're being manipulated, you know. (laughs) uh, And I I can get resent that. And I often try to wish I could just scrub Mm. the soundtrack out and listen to what's happening and see if it would stand up without that musical... uh, reinforcement, if you like.
1: Tell me just a little before we move on to Tennyson, which I want to do in a moment, but tell me a little about your own personal musical tastes. What do you enjoy? Oh uh,
2: Well, uh, I suppose st- strictly classical, if you like, but ranging from early music right through Baroque, Romantic um, into the modern era, I'm, I'm pretty open to anything.
1: Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds marvellous. <laughs> so uh, Tennyson, you mentioned melodrama a moment ago, mm. high melodrama. As far as I'm aware, Tennyson has not been in fashion for a very long time, although I certainly, I vividly remember a small, leather-bound Navy book from my childhood, and I can remember reading The Charge of the Light Brigade and and The Lady of Shalott. He was an utterly towering figure of his age, wasn't he?
2: Oh, yes, poet laureate um, to Queen Victoria, Hmm. Um, and immensely popular throughout the Victorian and Edwardian ages. At, At school, we read Tennyson. And I loved some of those poems like um, The the Land of the Lotus Eaters, uh, The Mort D'Arthur. There are some wonderful passages um, and very uh, real old-fashioned word music, if you like, Mm. some of which uh, still is there in Enoch Arden. But um, I think um, the the moderns tended to despise uh, Tennyson being too conservative in his politics, his religion, his uh, the social constraints of the Victorian age, they're all there in Tennyson. And I suppose that's okay, one can, one can uh, live with that. But um, there's an escapist element, I suppose, that especially a thing like the Mort d'Arthur, that mm. pre-Raphaelite um, obsession with Arthurian legend and um, uh, medievalism, which is reflected in so much like Victorian Gothic architecture, mm-hmm. for instance, and all those paintings of the Pre-Raphaelites—it was a, an escapist tendency to get away from the ugliness of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. Uh, let's go to somewhere that was nostalgic and beautiful, and everybody was noble and lovely, and you know, mm. chivalrous, and all that sort of thing. And I think after the First World War, it became impossible to look at that as a as a, um, a way of living. Mm. Uh, the, the First World War, I think, shattered that illusion of escapism and uh, nostalgia mm. and the moderns said let's get real, let's get down to earth and you know, write a new kind of poetry, a new kind of expression of what the world is really like and not try and hide in the past mm. and I think that's one reason Tennyson went af- out of fashion but I still go back to his poems just for the word music um, mm. alone, it can be very beautiful. Uh,
1: so Enoch Arden, which John performed yesterday, I, I'm not sure, we, were many of you there yesterday? I know my lots of people were there yesterday. and. I think it was a curious thing. I felt that we were having a, a marvellously evocative experience, but at the same time, I put my little critic's hat on and thought how ripe the language were. was, how the, the presumptions that are embodied within the piece about the sort of the order of things is, is really remarkable. Everyone is, as you say, noble. Everyone acts with great decency. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> if only that were <laughs> current, it'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> so... Uh, here we are you know, in, in 2018 in, as you say, a very, very different world. How do you then approach creating a production of something that has such different resonances, almost from a, an utterly different world?
2: Yes, I think, well, if a piece... Well, take in our garden, I suppose, as an example, if a piece has its own artistic integrity and is a great piece of work of its time, then we can just take our critical hat off, if you like, for a while <laughs> and just enjoy the beauty of it for its own sake, um, and not let political correctness interfere too much with our enjoyment of of the piece. It's like enjoying a piece of um, Buddhist art or um, art from ancient Greece. You don't have to share the same philosophy or religious beliefs or um, acceptance of myth to to appreciate the beauty of what has been created. Mm -hmm. And I think one can do that. Mm -hmm. With drama, it's more contentious because audiences I think can turn off play if the, um, say, gender politics is just so out of kilter uh, with what we uh, expect today that people can um, rather resent being uh, presented with something that is just a little bit too out of, out of, out of the way, too old
1: fashioned. Mm, mm. So roughly perhaps for those who, who are a little bit rusty on Enoch Arden, the, the narrative line is basically three children grow up together, um, two marry. The man goes off to sea and he's gone for a very long time and when he comes back he realises that his wife, whom he still loves very deeply, has married the other chap, mm. um, and he decides never to let her, well, that he'll that he'll hide himself from her because he can see how happy she is. So it's an extraordinary sort of scenario. In a sense, it's an inversion of Odysseus. I mean, Odysseus is gone for 20 years and mm. he comes back to find Penelope steadily weaving at her loom and <laughs> patiently waiting. Mm. But uh, interestingly, um, Enoch Arden is, is just rich in that kind of deeper subtext and allusion, isn't it?
2: Yes, I suppose really um, the only really really uh, gripping part of the story that we, we we do cling to is the fact that Enoch uh, denies himself the, the joy of reuniting with his family. Mm-hmm. He chooses the harder path of I won't reveal myself, they're all so happy as they are, if I step back into their lives it'll ruin everything so I will withdraw, I will live alone and die in private. That's a huge sort of uh, ethical decision if you like. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that touches us, the rest about shipwreck and desert islands and you know, childhood romance, that we can let all that go. But I think the nub of it is his decision to sacrifice himself mm-hmm. for for the family's happiness. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, in that sense, it made me think about some really quite profound, enduring human stories. I mean, it's almost a Joseph Campbell myth in a way, people who are grappling with quite existential stories. And yes. For somebody who is working in the theatre or, or working to produce something, you, you're tapping into quite deep veins of human experience there, aren't you?
2: I think so. I think... You don't really take on any work of art uh, unless it it does that for you. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just a bit of trivia. You you, you look for that in every piece you approach. Is there a a, a truthful connection with with, um, experience? Mm -hmm. And uh, can we believe people would do that, would feel that? And if that's not there, then the piece is shallow. Mm -hmm. And even some of them... uh, People often knock Puccini, for instance, as being... um, too chocolate, boxy, and um, uh, <coughs> unreal. I think his his three great, well, to me, my mind, three great operas uh, Tosca, um, um, Boheme, and. Butterfly. Which one? Which
1: one? Butterfly, Butterfly. Madam Butterfly. Butterfly, yeah,
2: of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- th- those three, th- th- they are true stories. Those things really happened. Not necessarily to those particular characters, but those 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 things did happen, and are happening, mm. um, all around us. Um, so, and his music um, really taps into the humanity, and it tells you how to perform those pieces, mm. even to the sense, you, if you listen, you can hear, it takes someone that long to cross from there to there, and to come down those stairs, or whatever. It's, it's all in the music. It, mm. He's a great dramatist, mm. and I find Puccini's operas totally compelling, totally real. Uh, I'm about to, I did a production of Butterfly ten years ago for what was called Oz Opera. that's the, the touring regional company, um, <coughs> and th- I'm going to do it again next year, this time with largely a large cast of Asian singers, which I think is very good, uh, it's appropriate to the piece, um, we get a little bit anxious now about white ladies making up, giving themselves Japanese makeup, it's a little bit uh, distasteful, maybe. So, to have Asian singers will be very good. And to send them out throughout regional Australia is also a very good message, I think, we're sending around the country about our cultural diversity and the place mm-hmm. of uh, artists of mixed ethnicity working in our main mm-hmm. stage companies. So, and the other thing about I like about it is that it's a small company and I'll have their singers all the time from day one. <laughs> 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 they, won't be, they won't be flying in from La the day before. <laughs> so I look forward to restaging that and, and, and taking that out on mm. tour. Over the next two years they'll be touring mm. that around the country.
1: But, but I think what you're really touching on there is that the stories that resonate with us most deeply are, are the same stories again and again. It's that long lineage from Sophocles to Shakespeare, mm-hmm. if you will, of of stories, and perhaps Enoch Arden does sit there, of things that are about the deepest human impulses. And so the connection you make with the audience on those stories can be a very powerful one.
2: Yes. um, Someone said there are only seven stories in the world. I've never actually sort of (laughs) examined that thesis, but uh, there's something in what you say about um, there are certain great decisions to be made or sacrifices to be made or things to aspire to that you find in fairy stories, you find in, in the ancient myths, and you find in, in modern retellings of those stories. But um, they're, they're, they're very, they can touch us very profoundly, no matter how ancient they are.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, Alex, when he introduced Enoch Arden yesterday, made reference to the, the long list of, of other sort of productions and takes on the idea. One that he didn't mention was that um, the famous Marilyn Monroe film that never made it, Something's Got to Give. Marilyn was to play Ellen Arden, who was a photographer, who was shipwrecked. (laughs) 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 You really, what a distance from Tennyson, the rock star poet laureate, to to Marilyn Monroe. It's quite remarkable. I did wonder, as I watched you and Simon on stage, how you had prepared and worked with each other for this piece. And if you could talk me through how you developed the work for performance.
2: Well, whenever I work with musicians, I have to confess, first up, I can't read music. and that's, I, I get away with it. Um, I remember when I, I did Peter and the Wolf with uh, Ashkenazi. I said, uh, Maestro, I must tell you for, front up, I, I, I can't read music. He said, nobody can read music.
3: <laughs>
2: he said, Pavarotti couldn't read music. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, no. He said, I did a recording um, myself, Ishmael Perlman, and Pavarotti. And Pavarotti said, now don't you pull any tricks, you musicians, you. <laughs> So, I'm a bit like Pavarotti, <laughs> I, uh, I say to the marshal, I can't read music, uh, b- but I've, studied, I've listened to it again and again I, and I know what I want to do uh, with it uh, but I trust my collaboration with the conductor will be uh, uh, strong enough that we can work together mm. um, and I've been lucky enough on two out of three occasions to have a, a sympathetic conductor, <laughs> the other one I fought with night and day, that was a <laughs> not a good experience but that same conductor also fought with the tenor and the soprano so <laughs> maybe it was his problem not mine mm-hmm. um so you can get away. I, I i do wish that i'd studied music and uh the theory mm-hmm. and that i had learned to read music it's a it's never too late, I know, but I'm a bit lazy, I suppose now. And I mm-hmm. think if I can get away with it, I'll get away with it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, when you work with with uh, Simon on a piece like this, well, how do you work out the balance? Sure. What happens? Uh,
2: I suppose ideally, I'd be there with the score on a on a mm. you know on a stand, and I'd be reading the score, and I'd know and I know when to come in exactly with the um, hmm. with the words. Hmm. In in our case, I just have to look at Simon, and he gives me a little wink. <laughs> We're and I come with the words.
1: Mm. I had the same
2: with Ashkenazi. I said I can't read the music. He said, "Okay, I'll bring you in. I'll give you a cue every time." Well, the cue could range from that to that <laughs> to that. <laughs> and once it was just a great big grin. I said, I, "I said, was that a cue?" He said, "No, no, I'm just enjoying myself."
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, it is. It's it's interesting that. As an idea, that you have almost no element other than your voice and the piano, and even the piano, and the Richard Strauss score is, it's sort of waves and intervals of music. Mm. It's not a sort of a score as such in that it, it comes and goes for long periods of yeah, time. Yeah,
2: it's very peculiar. Mm. Uh, maybe it's because he was reading it in German. He had a different impression of what it was all about, but there's sometimes when the music actually almost swamps the words. It's mm. a, we've got to really fight each other about being heard. Other times it comes in little dribs and drabs in unlikely places, <laughs> and you think, well, oh, here's a good place to put music, and he doesn't do it. Yeah. So uh, I just wonder. The, the choices he made to me are very odd ones. Mm. Some of it works very, very well, but other times I think, I, now why isn't there music there or why is that bit there? It needn't be. Mm, yes. We'll yeah. never a- a- know.
1: A- as an actor though, as somebody whose business is words and movement, uh, is the music like another character when you're on stage?
2: Oh. Um, in this case, yes. Um, but I also enjoy working with musicians when um, we're they are quite separate entities. Um, I, I'm doing some work with the Tinelli String Quartet, reading Beethoven's letters, mm. and so there, the words and music are totally separate. Mm. But it's such a joy to sit among a string quartet, to sit with them on the s- in the space, and to have that music so close. Mm. You can hear the woodiness of the instruments. You can watch the fingering of the of the uh, the, the, the uh, individuals, and that's a real privileged mm. to be st- right in amongst the music, mm. that the words are, the, are quite separate, but I feel that I am very much part, and the Beethoven letters are so moving and so graphic, mm. that they, and the music expresses what mm. what he was feeling so strongly that I feel that mm. I'm very much part of the team with mm. them.
1: Are you also watching the musicians ply their trade, in a sense, as a craftsman who Absolutely. is very close? Oh, it's wonderful,
2: because mm. when you listen to music, you, you hear an orchestra playing, and you, you hear all this wonderful sound, but you don't realize the expertise that goes into every single note mm-hmm. that when you watch musicians up close and watch the the the, the string players the technique they have to apply mm-hmm. and then the, the the conductor has to pull it all together and know exactly the balance and when to bring in people and when and tempi and all of that it's it's quite amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked with Simone Young quite a lot and she has the most beautiful hands I've ever seen. They're so expressive and to watch what the left hand is doing as opposed to the right hand, uh, it's, it's an extraordinary operation. Yes. And what that brain is doing to keep all of that together mm. and still have the emotion come through so strongly. So it's not just a cerebral thing, it's all about... Emotional expression.
1: Yes, I'm, I'm intrigued by that notion of one craftsman watching another craftsman yes. at work in a, a slightly different sphere, but mm. thinking of the, the technique and the, and the precision that goes in underneath, as it were. Yes. Yeah. Well,
2: whenever I watch musicians or singers or, or dancers, even, I do think, oh, we actors are a lazy lot, really. We, uh, we, we, we tend to sort of uh, you know, slop around and get things more or less uh, correct. Uh, because it's more lifelike to be a little bit sloppy, a bit casual. But really, um, if we applied that technique that singers and musicians do, uh, we could lift our game quite a lot. <laughs> well so I, I often tell my actors, you know, go and watch the musicians, go and watch the ballet dancers, mm. and really see how much you know mm. t- a technique can be applied and what it does for your, mm. well your I, work. Well, I was
1: watching last night the um, the Arava Quartet who performed, and I, what I thought was sort of warp speed intensity and were completely exhausted at the end of playing their Tchaikovsky Mm. Um, Mm. and the physical effort as well as the sort of huge precision and skill was quite marvellous. Uh, You and Simon Tedeschi have also been working on Bright Star and that's a a piece that draws connections between John Keats and and Franz Schubert, two of the the great figures among the romantics. Talk to me about that idea and how it came about.
2: Well, Simon and I have so much enjoyed doing Enoch Arden, we said let's do something else together. So I uh, had to think about it and uh, I've always liked Keats and i like, I think Keats is wonderful to mm-hmm. recite and it's lovely to listen to and very simple, very accessible, I think. So I, I thought, why don't we put Keats with somebody? And then I well, Schubert's the obvious contender because they were near contemporaries. Um, they both died young. Uh, Keats was 25, mm-hmm. Schubert was 32. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both were in love with a woman. They couldn't marry because they, were broke yeah. <laughs> and were of not sufficient social standing. Mm-hmm. Um, so their lives, are, uh, they run parallel. They never knew each other or met each other, but I thought, let's put them together and uh, see what comes out of it. Mm-hmm. So we've devised a program called Bright Star, um, and I will be reading Keats's poems, tracing his biography, and Simon will tell us a bit about the biography of uh, of Schubert and play pieces by him. So mm-hmm. it'll be a nicely balanced program, I think, and. Uh, a tribute to the brightest stars of the, the Romantic movement.
1: Mm. Isn't it an extraordinary thing to think that that richness from both of them came at such a young age? Mm. And Keats is one of my great all-time favourite yes. poets, and to think that at 25 he was dead. But well, he didn't start
2: writing poetry till he was <coughs> eight, uh, 18. Yes. So it's, uh, or even older, I think, yes. 19. So he he wrote poetry for, pretty, for a very short period, but my gosh, the output. And the quality is astonishing. Mm. Mm. Uh,
1: what's what's the significance of the Romantics for you as, a, as a, a movement? I mean, there's this great sort of upwelling of emotion as opposed to sort of the, the, the strictness of the frameworks that came before.
2: Yes, they were sort of um, rebelling against, I suppose, the, the classical mm. um, rigor of the, um, the Baroque. Mm. Um, and so you get a lot of sloppy stuff, of yeah. course. But it uh, was a greatness, uh, great music, um, and uh, the painters too, um, people like Turner, for instance, uh, took a, you know, the same approach to the, the, the wonders of nature, the, the, the vastness of nature, the, the force of nature. Um, so you get a lot of huge romantic Paintings, canvases that often reflect, uh, again, back to medieval times and romantic mm. stories, mm. but full of emotion and full of uh, spectacle. And I think the music echoes that.
1: Mm. I'm, I guess I'm thinking of that in terms of our earlier conversation about Tennyson, because mm. the sort of the great waves of emotion that come from the Romantics then turn into almost high melodrama they do. in the
2: Victorians. They often overlap. Mm. Uh, and when it's great, that's fine. You can get away with it. Sometimes it is substandard and then it's just melodrama. Mm. But the word melodrama itself is not a pejorative, it just simply means uh, drama with music. Mm -hmm. Um, We use melodramatic rather as a pejorative these days. Um, But uh, the the poets of the period, they they all shared that same um, uh, quest for for vastness and greatness which of course also led to uh, things like the rise of Napoleon and other dictators uh, who felt the the, the the call of greatness, the call of <laughs> yes. conquest, etc. Uh, and they were rather romanticized mm-hmm. in the beginning until people started to see through what was going on. And people like Beethoven withdrew his support from Napoleon, and others uh, started to withdraw their uh, admiration of these people who were becoming tyrannical. Yes. But it was the same surge, if you like, of emotion and ambition. Mm-hmm. That uh, produced um, Beethoven. That it produced Napoleon as well.
1: Mm, the, the great man strides the stage. The great man, stage. exactly. Yes, yes. The, the
2: hero. The mm-hmm. uh, the. Um, the man of his age. Mm. indeed. Mm. Um, Dangerous. There are a few of them starting the world stage right now and I think we can keep our eye on them.
1: Absolutely. Um, I I am going to turn over to you for your questions in a few minutes. I've got a couple more questions I'd like to ask John, but if you are thinking that you're longing to have this opportunity to ask John Bell something penetrating and insightful, (laughs) it's about to arrive. The moment is almost here. Uh, John, at this point in your career, what are you looking for in a project?
2: Oh, it's um, something that for an old man to do. <laughs> um, you find there are less and lesser roles available. Uh, young ones coming through who are, you know, have all that energy and ambition, who are reshaping this, the, the, this, the, na- the nature of theater as we know it. Mm-hmm. So you've got to sort of move aside a bit and let them muscle in and also encourage new talent to come to the fore. I, I do enjoy now mentoring people. Uh, teaching and um, setting up uh, opportunities for younger artists. I've started a foundation in Sydney, um, well, up the Central Coast where I live most of the time, uh, to raise money for young artists across the board, whether it's pop singers, opera singers, filmmakers, painters, whatever, but we try to raise money to support people from you know, fairly disadvantaged backgrounds to whom a couple of thousand dollars can make a big difference and start them on a project, mm. so I enjoy doing that as well.
1: Mm. What, what sort of fruit has your mentoring work borne? Who do you look at with delight that you are able to help them along on their career?
2: Oh, just in most recent times, we have a girl uh, who uh, has recently played a leading role with Melbourne Theatre Company. Uh, a couple of classical musicians are now studying overseas. Uh, a couple of others have got into training schools in uh, Western Australia and uh, in Sydney. Uh, one boy painted me for the Archibald and got hung, got exhibited, so that was nice <laughs> for him. Uh, so yes, I can see them coming through. And, mm. and another young cinematographer won the best uh, best cinematographer in the recent uh, Flickerfest festival in Sydney. So they're only like 18, 20, so God knows in 10 years time where they'll be. Mm, but Exciting to feeling. watch happening. But, but
1: a marvellous feeling for you to think it's that good. The, this next burgeoning generation yeah. um, is able to be connected. Uh, what, what stretches you now? Are, are there things that you still find really challenging?
2: Oh, old age is a challenging. <laughs> 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 um, I want to travel more while, while one still can, so um, heading off to a, on safari in a few weeks' time would be nice. Um, uh, I suppose... Uh, I I would like to tackle a couple more operatic pieces, but I'd have to find the right conditions Mm -hmm. to do them in. Um, I will never run another theatre company. I've done that for 50 years, and that's enough of that. So it really is, I suppose, trying to find or create little vehicles, like this one with Simon, Mm -hmm. uh, that are just fun to do. And it's it's fun to go to a music festival for a few days and see parts of the country Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't see otherwise. Mm -hmm. So it's um, really a matter of just putting little things together that are, Exciting and interesting, and f- which I have no responsibility except just to be there.
1: <laughs> well, I, I might share with you all that the very first real play I ever saw was John playing Lear many long years ago. And I was in year 12 at the time. My friend's mother said, come on, we've got we've got to go and take you girls to something really proper and well done. <laughs> so off we went. And you were a, a young Lear, a young, angry, mm-hmm. sort of raging Lear. And I, I recall the set being sort of almost post-apocalyptic, sort of apocalyptic, mm-hmm. fall of Berlin kind mm-hmm. of setting. And then to see you play Lear only a few years ago and to see a, a melancholy, older, gentler, mm-hmm. confused Lear, it made me think in fascinating ways about the arc of an actor's career and how that changes the roles that you can inhabit. Everything can be fresh no matter where you are.
2: Yes, I think when you're a a young actor, a role like Hamlet or Macbeth is a kind of a a character role, if you like. Mm -hmm. When you get to a certain age, it becomes just you (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> expressing
2: yourself through the words
1: yeah, yeah. well look let's, let's turn over to you now we've got two microphones and I would just ask you if you've got a question to just pop your hand up so that we can get one of the roving microphones to you and yes we'll go to you there in the middle and I think there's another one over here um...
2: John I, I wonder whether you'd like to reflect on your times at the Nimrod Theatre, uh, what you envisaged for it when you started it, uh, how it went, its successes, its triumphs, its failures, any really fond memories you have of those days? That's a rather big question. (laughs) (coughs) (coughs) Just uh, in in brief, (coughs) I suppose what we started to set out to create was uh, a platform for new Australian drama There wasn't much being done around around 1970. Um, It was largely um, overseas plays and classics. So we wanted to create a a space for new Australian writing. People like David Williamson and John Romrell, Jack Hibbard, Alex Buzo started to write plays for us. Um, And then, uh, once that was established, we wanted to, or I wanted to explore, (coughs) a way of playing Shakespeare in Australia, because when I came back from England, I felt that the five years I'd spent there with the Royal Shakespeare Company, I thought I can't really apply any of this back home. The way the uh, English were speaking and acting and the focus of their productions was something that was theirs. And I thought, the Australia I come, I have come back to is not like that. Um, it had changed quite a lot. It seemed more materialistic, more hedonistic. There's the, the mineral boom was in, in full swing. Uh, it was a different culture. And I thought, I, if we're going to make Shakespeare or the classics work here, we've got to find a way of playing them that is our own, that relates to us, and not try to imitate an English model. No matter how good it is, it just isn't our model. So let's try to find ways of relating the plays to our own environment. What are the issues that are most pertinent there that we are, can, can recognize and grapple with? Let's try and find ways of speaking Shakespeare that uh, are our own, whatever various accents people have in this country. Let's not deny those. Let's use them. Um, let's put them into uh, design, costumes, set, music, etc. that uh, bring the plays into focus. People say, is Shakespeare still relevant? Well, it's always relevant. Our job is to point out the relevance and say, this is why it's relevant. Uh, these are the issues of say, racism, or ambition, or revenge, or uh, sexual harassment, or whatever, and say, these are hot topics. These are still potent. Let's, let's explore them. And so that was the the idea. S- sometimes worked, sometimes didn't. There were miss, hits and misses. Um, but um, over, I ran that company for 14 years. And by the end of it, I had th- had enough. I thought, I'll never run another theater company. <laughs> then along came someone with the idea of Bell Shakespeare. And that was the next 25 years went by in a flash.
1: <laughs> <coughs> do, you, do you think just on that, John, is it important to try to bring an Australian resonance to the work that you do? Oh, we saw you yesterday with this Victorian melodrama that's mm. quintessentially English with the, the hazelnut woods and the, yes, exactly. the mill and so on and so now forth. No, you,
2: you can't. There are some things yeah. you, you just tr- shouldn't try to impose. For instance, um, you can't really do Tennessee Williams. With an Australian accent, for instance, no, no. or, or relocate it yeah. in Marubra or whatever. You know, <laughs> it just wouldn't work. You've got to try and Blanche. <laughs> That's <right. laughs> that sounded a very Australian Yeah. <laughs> um, no, you've, you've got to um, <laughs> r- respect the context. But uh, <laughs> other classics are so universal that uh, they they go beyond locality, mm. and you you can relocate them in time and place. I think very effectively mm. and bring them back. In a way that is fresh, and audience say, "Oh, I haven't seen that play before." You know, yeah. it's uh, you shake off the cobwebs, if you like.
1: Yeah. Yes. Not,
2: not of the play, but just the, the accretions over the years that have mm. clung to it.
1: Mm. And you're right about the accretions. I mean, that, that's... Uh, w- I was interested to harken back to your discussion on productions of opera that sort of won't go rolling on without your intervention. Accretions are the risk there, aren't they? They are. Mm. They are, yes. Yeah. Things, things w- that blur the original vision. That's
2: right. Mm. And I think uh, opera audiences are the most conservative. They want to see the opera in its proper time and place, and you can't... Meddle around with that? Well, I think you can. I think you can really, uh, if you've got the right reason and the right um, vision, mm. you can shift uh, an opera into a different time and place and make it just as effective, well, or more effective, for an audience today than something that seems like remote and fairy tale-like and 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 uh, not doesn't impinge anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Yep, Diana. I have about ten questions, but I'll narrow it down to one. <laughs> Um, I'm curious about um, why the work of Stanislavski in opera is so little known about, much less understood, and why we can't look to his work in his later career rather than the... uh, Often people think of Stanislavski related to method acting, but that's not Stanislavski, that's Lee Strasberg, etc., etc. But Stanislavski spent a lot of his later career in opera and his Work was incredibly organic, just like yours. Do you have a, um, a sense of why we don't think about Stanislavski and opera in current professional practice and pedagogy?
1: It's a very candid question, Diana, and I thank you for it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> when you say Stanislavski and opera, I'm not quite sure.
1: Well, he spe- he
4: was an opera singer, which most yes. people wouldn't know if mm. if we didn't mention it, um, and you know quite a quite a. Strongly well trained musician, and a lot of his directorial work later in his career was on Evgeny Onyagin, uh, you know, it was, mm. it was on opera, but it's very few people know that, and much uh, I have not heard of it being taught in an operatic course for starters, um, much less integrated into a process, and a mm. performance if, if, if process. I understand what
1: you're getting at there, really. It's this notion that, that, that what we might think of broadly as method. Is not, not so familiar act. on the opera stage. It's oh, no, not I, method acting. No, no. That's but I un- yeah. understand what you're saying. But the, yep. the idea that you can that opera, with all of its perceived rigidity and and straightness, could be challenged by other applications. Yeah. It's yeah. not
4: method acting. That's a whole <laughs> other. That's from yeah. New York. Totally different <laughs> thing. Uh, it's. Oft- I only mention that because it's conf- sometimes confused with that. But his work in opera was incredibly organic. Was very much about the marriage of text and music. Mm. And I'm just really curious why we don't know more about that.
2: I think probably the real reason is that not enough attention is given to the acting part of opera. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most opera directors and impresarios and people say it's all about the music and the singing and the voices. The acting, you know, we can, it's incidental. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, they they, they would prefer uh, a a great singer who can't act Mm -hmm. to one who can act and sing reasonably well. It's all all about the voice. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think there's very much uh, goes into training opera singers to act. Mm. Uh, there's a little bit maybe uh, op- odd acting classes here and there, but it's not really taken mm. uh, all that seriously. And of course, Stanislavski, um would rehearse for months and months and months. And so it's an in-depth examination that no opera company would ever be mm. invest in. Um, and that's, that's why they, I guess they ask people like me into direct opera because. I come from a theatre background and I'm interested in the acting side of it and I think, oh, well, here's somebody who can, who can fix it. Well, I can't fix it in two or three rehearsals yeah. and I can't fix it if the singer flies in the day before. Uh, ideally, I'd say, okay, I will do it. Just give me, say, um, at least six weeks rehearsal with all the singers available all the time and then we can start talking about you know, Stanislavski and really getting into character and Mm. full-on motivation and all those things and will make it more real and more intense than you've ever seen it before mm. but uh, nobody would uh, I think would, mm. would take that on, that's just too big an ask I suspect. Mm. You've got proper companies somewhere in the world who do that but yeah. it generally, I'm sorry, it, it seems to be a universal thing um, uh, about the singers only arrive at the last minute and perform and one reason is they don't get paid for rehearsal mm. they only get paid per performance and so if I can do a gig here and then fly off to La Scala tomorrow and then do another one in, in Stuttgart the next day, fine. That's, that's what in, while my voice lasts. You know. There are certain professional priorities there, I'm afraid. But uh, yes, I would long to have the opportunity to have a, a full-time opera company, a, a permanent company, not just people flying in and out, but people who'd work together over a long period and build up a, a culture that made the acting and the singing absolutely symbiotic.
1: Mm. And I, I do wonder whether that's perhaps not one of the barriers towards wider acceptance in the in the general um, theatre-going public of opera is that you know it, it's so predicated on the the, the voice being the, the primary vehicle yeah. and the acting being second in the rungs. But now, next to you,
0: um, John, you mentioned two smaller productions, um, Beethoven's letters and Bright Star. Were we? Will we be seeing those shortly in Canberra? Um.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she says optimistically.
2: <laughs> I, I hope so, yes. Um, Simon has a, a manager who arranges his tours and so she'll be looking for opportunities for us to, to trot it around. I think we've got about a dozen booking next, next year for it already. So, uh, um, but I'm sure she'll be thinking of that, definitely.
1: Yeah. And we'll just go to you here. Thank you. Hang on.
4: Hello, John. Uh, I I first of all like to say how much I appreciated you coming and helping me with the children I was teaching in Western Sydney just at the beginning of the Bell Shakespeare Company. And you and Anna came and brought actors for nothing (laughs) and helped those kids understand Shakespeare. But the question I really want to ask you is um, out of all the characters in Shakespeare that you've played, I'd love to know which one was personally the most valuable for you in your own life, if you can.
1: Oh.
2: <laughs> the most valuable. That, that's interesting. Um, look, uh, for I your suppose own
4: for your own development, I suppose. Yes. I, uh, I mean that may be rather a personal question, but you know you'll know how to.
2: That's no, no, all right. That's <laughs> no, all right. <laughs> I, I think, funnily enough, I've been more successful in the characters that are nothing like me, like Richard III, for instance. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're nothing alike at all, but he's such a joy to play. Um, it's a bit like people love playing gangsters, because you, you let all your other, your worst ass side out, and you have fun playing somebody who's nothing like you. It's just a, a game, it's a pretense. And Richard III is very like that. It's a wonderfully constructed character. But I suppose for personal reflection, um, I guess Hamlet's the one you keep coming back to because uh, you can measure yourself against Hamlet every ten years or so and say how am I doing in terms <laughs> of uh, um, reconciling myself to to fate, to destiny, to to, to um, challenges, to moral decisions and uh, complex uh, dilemmas. You know. Uh, I guess Hamlet appeals to young people because he's in that stage of adolescent um, confusion about to do with his mother and his, and his dead father and, you know, and sibling rivalry with Laertes, all that sort of stuff. And as you get older it becomes about, it becomes about other things, uh, it becomes more f- uh, reflective and uh, looking at the larger picture, just, not just yourself. So I think one measures oneself against Hamlet quite, quite a lot and you can see it played by people of various ages and it will mean different things. Mm-hmm. It, it's odd because when the play starts, he's young Hamlet, he's still at university, so he's about 18 or something. Mm-hmm. Then in the last scene, the gravedigger says, uh, I've been gravedigger here for 30 years, ever since young Hamlet was born. So he's 30 by the end of the play. So what's happened? Is he, he got <laughs> that much older in the course of the play? Not really. It's like he's young when he starts, he's more mature when the play finishes. That's what Shakespeare's saying, I think, that he's grown up over the course of the play. Mm-hmm. The way Juliet grows up from being a 14-year-old girl to a mature woman in the space of four days, she becomes this extraordinary heroine, you know. Mm-hmm. So Shakespeare is good at playing that double time thing of uh, making the play speed along And yet, at the same time, people grow up incredibly fast within it.
3: Mm -hmm. Okay, up up the back. Hello. Uh, I would like to congratulate you for your uh, fantastic uh, career. I have uh, been attending plays, and I have seen the opera Tosca, your uh, staging, and I would say both uh, your acting career and the staging of operas is absolutely remarkable. Um, but um, I would like to know, what is your favourite contemporary playwriter? Um, uh, because I have seen in Australia different playwriters from Williamson and, and others, and I I don't know. I. I think sometimes playwrights have lost the way <laughs> on how to convey the, the, your values, your the principles, etc. I think uh, I think I would like to know your opinion on that.
2: Mm, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, look, there, there's quite a, a wide range, I suppose, of writers working in different <coughs> kinds of theatre. Um, I think. Not strictly contemporary, but I suppose over the last, well, this last generation, I would say that uh, Arthur Miller has been one of the greatest uh, uh, American writers. The 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 depth in which he uh, he he explores uh, the American family and relationships and the American dream, if you like, Uh, you can come back to Arthur Miller again and again and find such richness of observation in his plays. Um, someone like uh, Beckett and Pinter explore the absurd, the, uh, the mystifying, the, uh, the worrying kind of uh, um, abstractions that, uh, that, that invade us and our, and our thinking. Uh, to someone like Tom Stoppard is wonderfully uh, witty and creative. He carries on that tradition of, say, Sheridan or Noel Coward in terms of playing with language and very, very clever ideas. Um, and Carol Churchill, for instance, is a, a, great, a great feminist writer, I think, and explores uh, a lot of uh, really important issues from the, the women's perspective, which hasn't been done too often in the past. So that's just a few of the writers I, I come back to again and again and like seeing their work. But there are others. Uh, excuse me for those I've forgotten, but there are, <laughs> there are others as well, of In
1: the modern Australian context, are there people whose work you like here and now, or you, you're particularly intrigued by?
2: Uh, yes, there are a number, um, uh, Alana the, Valentine this, for instance is doing some really interesting work. Um, David Williamson is probably still one of our most popular writers and keep coming back to very current issues. Uh, and he's written a new play about Isaac Newton, which is quite a departure for him. And I'm looking forward, I've read a couple of drafts of it and I'll be seeing that in Brisbane uh, shortly. So he's exploring a, a quite a new territory, but um, look, it's um, it's hard for writers in Australia because there's nowhere to develop their work. They submit their plays and if they get on, they get a, a showing. But what we need is more <coughs> workshopping and exploration of plays to bring them to a point where they can be performed and not just a oh hit and miss opportunity. Yeah.
1: So I think our last question is just down here. Um.
2: John, thanks for all you've done over so many years. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Hamlet because we had this wonderful opera that Neil Armfield put on, it is extraordinary seeing the combination of music and drama that I think is going to, which I think will last forever. But uh, secondly, um, I wonder if you feel there's a role for you to play in some of the social issues that are uh, that, like immigration, um, Aboriginal uh, disadvantage, that you may play a role in some way or other, either by bringing forward plays that may address them or some other way. Yes. um, I think that that is being done quite a lot uh, at the moment. Um, I'm very interested to see, looking at the programs of the current, say, Belvoir, uh, STC, um, uh, MTC productions. There's much more focus now uh, on on those issues. Uh, Belvoir has done several plays recently um, on uh, migration, immigrant issues. uh, much more diverse uh, casting uh, ethic- uh, e- uh, in terms of ethnicity than we 've seen in the past uh, STC is grappling with some of those problems as well. Uh, I think theater companies on the whole are feeling the pressure uh, for for uh, more female writers, female directors, female artistic directors, and much more uh, if you like colorblind gender-blind casting in plays. Again, some of those are better informed than others. That doesn't always work. It's a nice, a nice principle to work from, but you've got to be fairly discreet as to how you handle it, otherwise it can misfire. But I do think, that on the whole, that theatre companies are becoming um, much more um, um, devoted to exploring those issues, whether it's through using um, old plays or creating new ones. And I think that is very much part of theatre's function and hasn't been always in Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, We've started to pick it up from uh, what we've been seeing in in Britain particularly, I think, but there's been a lot of of emphasis on on those issues for quite some time. But I think we're starting to catch up. Mm -hmm. And certainly all our young writers that I come across are very involved with those issues. They're not writing stuff that's just um, entertainment. They're really digging into stuff that they feel quite passionate about. that's a very good sign, good hope for the future.
1: A wonderful conversation with John Bell. Thank you very much indeed for your part in it. John, thank you so much for being with us. Great pleasure.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Well, we've certainly been on a wonderful, wonderful journey this morning from the weirdness of the opera world through the... Word music of Keats and Tennyson, and right up to the role of theatre in contemporary Australia. The rest of your journey is about to begin. If you'd like to go up to the foyer, we do have some of John's books for sale in the bookshop, and John's agreed to sign them for a little while. And if you are staying for the concert that begins at 11, it will be in the foyer too, and it will take you on another journey through the parliamentary triangles. Have a wonderful day, and thank you for coming this morning. And please thank John and Genevieve.